Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Every year, as many as 20 million people get typhoid fever. About 160,000 die, most of them children. And the bacteria that cause it are increasingly resistant to antibiotics. We take a look at a promising new vaccine. And we hop on the world's shortest scheduled flight, which could soon also be the world's greenest. It takes longer to describe the journey than to make it. But first... For the past year, American officials and the Afghan militants of the Taliban have been holding talks. The goal has been to help Afghans achieve peace. Afghans are yearning for peace. There have been war in that country for 40 years. The American envoy to the negotiations, Zalmay Khalilzad, spoke last month to the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security about the goal of ending America's longest conflict. We also have been there involved in a war for some 18 years. We would like to end this war. We associate ourselves with the aspirations of the Afghan people. And this week in Qatar, there was news of a breakthrough. Mr. Khalilzad declared the two sides had made excellent progress towards a deal. The essence of it is two things. America is going to pull out its troops, lots of them to begin with, and then the rest on some kind of schedule that will be public and, and will have probably some conditions attached. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. In return, the Taliban will agree to sever their ties to terrorist organizations, international terrorist organizations like al-Qaeda, and they will agree that Afghanistan won't be used for attacks against America or other countries. In other words, they will address the problem that led America to invade back in 2001. So that's the essence of it. But of course, in practice, things are more complicated. There are other things that America wants. We don't know how many troops the Americans will pull out, how quickly they'll do so. And we don't know how they will enforce the Taliban's promises. And and is there a sense that the Taliban is is committed to to severing its ties with terrorist organizations like al-Qaeda? We don't fully know. I mean, some people would say the Taliban are terrorists, of course. Uh, We've only just this week had a a major attack in Kabul, perhaps attributed to the Taliban, which injured nearly 100 people. So that's that's pretty bad. I think I would point out that the Taliban and al-Qaeda are very different sorts of groups. The Taliban are more directly focused on Afghanistan. Of course, they have bases next door in Pakistan. But they're a nationalist organization. They're focused on Afghan territory. Al-Qaeda is a global organization focused on what they would call the far enemy, our outside powers, Western states, America. However, of course, it's more complicated than that. If you look at the Taliban's leadership structure, you see some of their very senior figures are members of an organization that's called the Haqqani Network, which is a militant organization backed by Pakistan. 
And that, in turn, has really close ties to al-Qaeda. So what some other people will say, what skeptics will say, is that the Taliban talk a good game, but actually they are part and parcel of these international jihadist movements. They share members, they share resources, and actually it's very, very difficult to disentangle these things. So it, it's clear that America does want to get out of, of, of Afghanistan, but what, what will result? What does an Afghanistan without American troops on the ground look like? Pretty bad. The Afghan National Security Forces, which currently have thousands of American troops backing them and in, in, in Afghanistan, they still lose about 50 people a day, right? Now, to put that in context, America has lost 15 soldiers in Afghanistan all year so far. So they are suffering very badly indeed. The Taliban control more territory than at any point since the war began. They feel the military momentum is with them. And so if America was to pull out, I think a lot of people fear that the Afghan state, particularly if America were to pull its financial support, that it would be overrun. They they simply wouldn't be able to survive. The Taliban say they want a complete Islamic system. We don't know quite what that means. And even if that's not quite the theocratic despotism that we saw in Afghanistan before 2001, what's very clear are that they will demand changes to the constitution, they will demand changes to women's rights, it will involve very substantial changes to the political and social order of Afghanistan, Uh, and I think that scares a great number of Afghans, not least the current crop of politicians who have got used to having power now for 18 years. So what's America doing to to win them over, to allay those fears? Well, we talked about two elements of the plan. So America pulls out, the Taliban make anti-terror promises. Those two things are really about the West and the Taliban. There are two other elements that um, uh, Zalmay Khalilzad also wants from the Taliban. And those two other elements are very important. One of them is a a permanent ceasefire. But the other one, and this is really fundamental, is the idea that once America and the Taliban agree agree to a deal, then you turn over to what's called intra-Afghan talks. In other words, the Taliban will then have to sit down and talk to the Afghan government themselves. Now, that's very, very difficult. Why is that the harder part? It's the harder part because the Taliban refuse to recognize the Afghan government. They consider them puppets of the Americans and illegitimate and and, and a total sham. And of course, they feel they're winning on the battlefield. Why give legitimacy to this government that that they feel is un-Islamic and shouldn't be recognized? And it's hard because so far we've discussed things that both sides want. The Americans want to get out and as quickly as possible. Some people told me, in fact, that they've already agreed the big troop cuts. It's going to happen. They just need to put a sort of fig leaf on it now. The intra-Afghan talks, the bits between the Taliban and the Afghan government, they will have to decide things like what's going to be the new Afghan constitution What's going to be the role of the Taliban? Will they disarm? What will be the role of Afghan security forces and intelligence services? Will they include Islamist fighters? What's going to be the role for women's rights, for schools? All of these things have to be hashed out between these people who have not really spoken to each other in 18 years, other than in very fleeting, unofficial encounters, back-channel talks, and so on. That will have to start, and it'll have to take place very quickly. Well, why, after 18 years, does, do things have to suddenly happen quickly? Well, partly because President Trump wants them to happen quickly, but also because Afghan elections are approaching. You're going to have Afghan elections at the end of September or so. Now, America's original plan was to say, 
here's a deal. Uh, let's hash everything out before the elections. And perhaps that means we won't even have to hold the elections because everyone is terrified they will be overshadowed by violence. The Taliban has said they will attack the elections. Uh, they will be overshadowed by botched vote counting and, and electoral processes as the parliamentary elections last year were. So that's one of the major problems. That you, want them, you want this deal ideally done before the elections, but that's going to be really hard. Uh, it won't be a complete deal. It will be a roadmap. And so that still leaves the problem of whoever wins the elections, they are going to have to deal with this issue and lead these talks. And if that person has won an election in a way that is messy or contested, it's, it's going to make it extremely hard for them to have the authority to negotiate big, sweeping changes to the Afghan constitution in a way that is accepted by most Afghans. Jishong, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. In the rich world, the disease typhoid fever was largely eliminated when clean water became the norm. Elsewhere, that isn't the case. Just having the bacteria in a very densely populated urban slum where sanitation is very poor, where people live in close proximity, where water supply may be contaminated, and importantly, street foods uh, are contaminated. Dr. Zulfikar Bhutta is a pediatrics professor in the large, poor city of Karachi in Pakistan. It's virtually the perfect storm in terms of a disorder that rapidly becomes a mini-epidemic. Dr. Bhutta is accustomed to receiving typhoid patients, usually children. In recent years, what we have been experiencing, particularly the last few years, Starting from Pakistan, it's a strain of typhoid, which is resistant to almost every known oral antibiotic that we have. Symptoms begin with fever and can escalate rapidly. Small children are particularly vulnerable. So typhoid can lead to a sepsis or septic shock-like condition, which in very young children uh, has a case fatality rate much higher than that of older children. And for a disease largely unknown in the rich world, the numbers affected are significant. Around the world, somewhere between 11 and 20 million people a year get typhoid fever. And um, of these, uh, about 160,000 die, mostly children um, in Asia and bits of Africa. Natasha Loder is The Economist's health policy editor. This figure is looking likely to increase because of some new strains of extremely drug-resistant typhoid which were emerging. Antibiotics, uh, which are used to sort of combat this fever have been overused really because people have been fearful that any fever could be typhoid. So uh, this is how the extremely drug resistant forms have emerged. So what was really needed was a vaccine, a vaccine that could be given to children um, because that's not the case now. Existing vaccines can't be given to children. And one's arrived, which is very exciting. Where, Where did you find out about this vaccine? Well, recently I went to the Gates Foundation and I talked to uh, Dr. Anita Zaidi, who's director of vaccine development there. But now the world is running out of antibiotics. 
And so typhoid is going to be the one illness, which is, it's a very common illness uh, that that children and anybody is exposed to, which will run out of antibiotic treatment options. And in fact, we have a very big uh, outbreak happening in Pakistan right now, which is where I am from. So a few years ago, the foundation decided uh, to investigate the possibility of a vaccine that would be safe for use in children of six months, unlike the current vaccines. And um, they actually found a vaccine that had been developed 20 years ago by American researchers at the National Institutes of Health. But it, it had been left on the shelf largely. It had been licensed to an Indian company. But the sort of large-scale research and testing for safety and efficacy that needed to be done hadn't been done. So Dr. Zaidi and her colleagues pushed it through the testing that was needed and did a whole uh, bunch of studies on it, including one that gave um, live typhoid bacteria to students. It was not easy to import this into the UK, right? We had to actually go through a lot of hoops to import this vaccine into the UK and give it to (laughs) British students at Oxford. They gave this vaccine to students, to guinea pig students. Yes. They, so they tested it in Britain, which is a, a good place to test a typhoid vaccine because there's no typhoid here. Um, so there's no natural resistance. And what they did was they gave live salmonella typhi bacterium in a drink to uh, these volunteers, and each of whom who had had one of the different uh, vaccines in three, there were three arms to the trial. And of course, they were able to use this test to figure out how effective this new vaccine was, um, and along with other tests as well. And they reckon it's about 90% effective. So what happens now? Well, it's all quite exciting, really. So, to, so this has gone so much faster than we were expecting. So now we have to do the same thing as... Although the vaccine does need to go through more tests over a period of time, the existence of the outbreak of extremely drug-resistant typhoid has meant that we've had to sort of move forward a little bit more quickly than we might otherwise have done with large-scale vaccinations. And they've already vaccinated 100,000 children in Pakistan in an initial phase. And a total of 200,000 doses of this vaccine uh, type bar TCV has been sent. And Gavi, uh, the Vaccine Alliance, uh, the, the group that purchases uh, vaccines for developing countries, has already committed to spending $85 million on the vaccine. And what they intend to do with that is to routinely immunise children using the vaccine in a whole variety of countries where typhoid is endemic. Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, Nepal, Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, Uganda, Zimbabwe, all of these countries are reporting outbreaks. I think what's really exciting about the vaccine is that it's going to offer an opportunity to really drive down uh, rates of typhoid in um, Asia and parts of Africa. I mean, I guess the conclusion is, um, you know, vaccine's good. I suppose the, the, the sort of irony there is that in various parts of the world there is this vaccines are bad kind of, uh, kind of movement. It must be frustrating to see this kind of success story and then know that elsewhere in the world perfectly uh, functional, perfectly good vaccines are being shunned. It's, it is fascinating. If you look at the pictures of the vaccination centers in Pakistan, you see a queues and queues of mothers and children lining up to be vaccinated because they know that this vaccine is life-saving. And it is, it is a bit sad, actually, when you sort of see these outbreaks of measles all around the world causing sort of devastation um, when it's really so pointless. 
For Dr. Bhutta, working with children with typhoid in Pakistan, the vaccine could make a huge difference. Uh, the use of this vaccine judiciously in the right populations to control the outbreak and provide population immunity is also important. On the other hand, people don't get typhoid in places with clean water. He also wants governments to invest in water infrastructure and for people to wash their hands. So I think it's absolutely important that one has a holistic solution to the problem, uh, which is in the form of strategies and measures that governments, public health officials, and civic society, which means families need to undertake. Um, But they're all equally important. So it's important not to put all your eggs in one basket. The Orkney Islands are off the northeast coast of Scotland. They're known for their striking natural beauty and ancient settlements. But they have another claim to fame. I was on Papua Westray. It's a small island at the remote northeastern end of the Orkneys. Leo Marani is The Economist's roving Britain correspondent. And I went to the airport, which was a hut. Plane shows up, two propellers, eight seats in minivan-style seating. I get on this plane, sit directly behind the cockpit, And we take off. And about a minute and a half later, we land. This this whole flight took a minute and a half. This flight from Papa Westray to its neighboring much bigger island, actually, of Westray, is 2.7 kilometers long, which is shorter than either one of Heathrow's runways. It is, according to the Guinness Book of Records, the shortest flight in the world. So that's the whole purpose of this flight, is, is just to be the shortest? I mean, why would anybody take this flight? So, two islands in the Orkneys, Papua Westray and North Ronald Sea, don't have piers. So when ferries go, which they go pretty infrequently anyway, people board and disembark the ferries with boats. And that's a bit dodgy in bad weather. And as you can imagine, the weather in a remote northeastern corner of Scotland is not great. About 75 flights a week are operated between the islands. And last year, 21,000 passengers used them. The teeny tiny short flight is actually a hop on the way back to Kirkwall, which is the biggest settlement in the Orkneys. Think about it like a bus. A bus starts in central London and goes far out to East London, but stops at lots of places, picking up and dropping off passengers along the way. And that's what these planes do. And, and how about the economics of, of a two-minute flight? How does that work out? It is not economical. I mean, it's, it, you know, it, it doesn't really make sense to run. And so the council has to subsidize it. I paid... 17 pounds to go from Papua Westray to Westray. Assuming I had just bought a ticket all the way back to Kirkwall, it would have been 18 pounds. But the council chucks in an extra roughly 46 pounds per person per trip, adding up to a total annual subsidy of about a million pounds. And so these tiny little flights on these tiny little planes, they're going to continue. I can head up and see for myself? Yes, yes, absolutely. You might consider the environmental ramifications of flying all the way up to the north of Scotland in order to take another flight. I mean, that is morally questionable, but it is possible for you to do, yes. However, if it eases your conscience, Jason, work is underway to electrify these planes. The biggest problem with electrifying planes is range. You can't go extremely long distances because you have to carry a lot of batteries, becomes very heavy, becomes impractical. These planes are used for these really short journeys, you know, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, 2 minutes, which means that they can relatively easily be electrified in about two or three years. They're hoping to put them into service. So you can actually go all the way up there 
and then feel rather pleased about the fact that you're causing very little, almost no environmental harm at all, especially since the Orkneys produce more wind power than they can use. So the shortest flight could soon be the greenest flight? Indeed. Leo, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.